But one of the things that I, I tell students and, and junior lawyers is that the red ink is a good sign. It means your, your, your work was worth spending, spilling the red ink on, right? If, if you don't get the red ink, it wasn't worth it. everybody, welcome to another episode of Off Council. I'm Sean Robichaud. In this episode, we talk to uh, Associate Dean Michael Marin, who uh, is at the University of New Brunswick Faculty of Law. This was a really neat interview. I had gone out to New Brunswick to uh, do a talk at the law school, and while I was there, I had interviewed um, several of their faculty. This was the first uh, of those interviews. Uh, Michael was kind enough to come by and meet me at the hotel I was staying at. We had a, a drink in the in the the hotel bar, and uh, then we snuck into a boardroom that we probably shouldn't have been using, but it was a great spot, and we had a great discussion about uh, his time moving through uh, the legal system, starting off with law school. And what's fascinating about Michael's perspective is now that he's associate dean. He's had the full range of experience. Uh, he went from you know law students, like many of our listeners are, to the dream job of working in New York City, uh, then clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada for Justice Binney. Uh, we talk about what that experience brought him, the opportunities that came, and all the things that uh, offer a very broad perspective on what it means to practice law in Canada uh, and beyond, and the options that are uh, out there. Michael had some really great insights to offer, you know, focusing on the process, not the outcome is one that resonated with me and uh, his work that he now uh, does in New Brunswick, uh, not just with the faculty of law, but also in the community and some unique perspectives that he's brought uh, along with his faculty to the practice of law and in teaching it in particular, um, the insights that UNB has to offer in upcoming practitioners in managing uh, mental health in the profession, and some of the other unique approaches and benefits that the UNB Faculty of Law offers. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Um, Ignore in the background at times some vacuuming that's going on, and just keep in context that this uh, recording happened in March 2019, so there may be some timing issues to uh, some of the issues we're discussing. But um, the rest of it is all quite timeless. So here we are with Michael Merrick. Um, for me, I guess it goes back to my time as a, an undergraduate student uh, when I got involved with uh, campus politics, the student newspaper, that kind of thing. I was pretty young. I was 19 years old. Um, and it was the first time ever involved in that kind of thing. Uh, so talking about contested issues, uh, getting involved in controversies on on campus, um, you know, uh, maybe upsetting some higher-ups in university administration, being a bit of a a rabble-rouser. And uh, I I quite enjoyed that that work. I mean, it it involved a lot of the skills that lawyers use, so writing, uh, critical thinking, uh, strategy, um, and at that point in my education, I kind of saw myself going more into public policy, um, that kind of thing. And so after uh, graduating, I moved to Ottawa and I worked for uh, one of the national student organizations 
I uh, did that for a year. Then I went to work for the Ottawa Food Bank, um, which is an organization that raises money and distributes uh, food in the national capital region uh, in a communications uh, role. So what year are we talking about now? Here we're in... Uh, 2003, 2004. Okay. So not to, are you in law school at this point? No, not, no, yet, not yet. No, I, So basically, uh, I, I was doing that kind of work and then I, I thought to myself, uh, that, uh, I'd like to develop these skills further. I was studying, I was doing a master's degree in public policy at the time. And we had a, a course that we had to take in, uh, public law. Uh, and that kind of exposed me a little bit uh, in kind of a superficial way, but certainly introduced me the importance of the law and legal institutions and how that's really a really important piece of the puzzle when you're concerned about, um, you know, social, political, economic issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the skill set as well was a skill set that I wanted to develop. So writing, advocacy, uh, that kind of thing. It must be pretty surreal uh, looking back, thinking, you know, you working at the food bank, here you would be associate dean now at a law school. That, did that seem pretty off course? I, I mean, I hadn't planned it. And, and in fact, I, th- and I think we'll get to this in our discussion, like so much of one's career trajectory is unpredictable, right? right. So I just thought at the time that this is something that would interest me to go to law school. Right. Um, and... Uh, first year, like for all law students and, and lawyers, is quite harrowing, and I wasn't really sure if I would succeed or, or continue. Um, and I remember at one point when it was getting really hard, and I had, you know, read, uh, um, you know, Smith and Hughes for the tenth time, and still didn't understand what it said. Uh, that I thought, you know, like maybe this isn't uh, really for me. Like maybe, uh, you know, I could get a job for an organization. I already had, I got my master's uh, degree uh, from Carleton in public policy. And I thought, you know, maybe I can just get a job, a similar job that I was doing before. I don't have to put myself through this hell, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but I stuck with it. And actually it was uh, my mom who said, no, no, like, keep, keep going. Like, mm-hmm. don't give up, keep, keep going. And, uh, you know, she's been a very important influence and support in, in, in my life. And that pushed me to finish my my first year. Well, you must have learned to have loved it, though, just because, you know, it's knowing where you ended up. You ended up uh, clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada. And uh, as we all know, they take uh, the top students. So uh, do you feel that there was a turning point <clears throat> within your, within your um, law school that you thought, now this is really what I want to roll my sleeves up and... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was my competing in the Jessup moot mm. in my uh, third year in law school. Um, up until the end of second year, and this is part of the advice and the story I tell students in my current role, because one of my jobs as associate dean is student advising. Um, and uh, so I talk to students about their career ambitions and options and that kind of thing. And, and I focus quite a bit on, on mindset because I think that's uh, really important. Um, and so first and second year, I was very focused on outcomes. Uh, I wanted to do as well as I could so that I could get a job and my at least the first few years of my career were secure. And I didn't really focus so much on learning and and the law i mean i did well but i didn't really engage with the material i was i was focused on the outcome and not the process of learning and that's a regret that i have i think if i were to do it again 
uh, I would try to not focus so much on outcomes. And it's hard to do that because so much of the culture of law school is focused on outcomes. Did you get a summer job? Mm -hmm. You know, are you going to get a clerkship? Um, you know, how did you do on this exam? Or where do you rank? You know, in your class, that kind of thing. It's very focused on outcomes, and I, I think for a lot of students, if if we can get them to focus on the process and doing the best that they can, and and getting into a routine that allows them to succeed. I think that that enriches the experience. So when I got to third year, I had a job lined up. I said to myself, you know what? Uh, I'm going to fo focus my third year on trying to get the most out of law school uh, for myself. And right? what do you mean the most? Then? Uh, challenge myself. Also, like, engage with the law, really. Mm -hmm. uh, not just read the material to prepare for an exam, but actually like think critically about it and develop my own views on on the material, um, and uh, and see where that takes me. Um, I, I went to the University of Ottawa for law school, and uh, it's developed now quite a strong reputation in in mooting. Uh, they have a very uh, good moot coach there and, and moot coordinator Anthony Damesis, who's had a lot of success. So I knew that, and I said, okay, well, I want to work with this guy because he's the best. He's going to challenge me. He's going to give me that experience that I'm looking for where I can make the most of my third year. So I signed up for that, uh, that moot. Uh, it was the hardest thing that I had done up to that point. The Jessup is notorious for being a really challenging competition, the nature of the problem and, and, and the law, and also the caliber of the judging and the students who participate is very high. So it really did challenge me. But it was one of the most memorable experiences of my life, even till today, from a professional standpoint. I grew tremendously. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that I thought, okay, I really like this. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, I, I really like the process of legal writing and analysis and argument, uh, but I actually realized I could probably do this pretty well, like if I put my mind to it, you know, and that was kind of the first time that I, 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 I realized it. Uh, so that things kind of took off for me from there. But up until that point, there was a lot of doubts, even though I was kind of getting good grades and stuff and getting job opportunities. I wasn't I wasn't sure. So um, what would you say, aside from process to a student who's in a similar situation, who's thinking, you know, I'm having doubts and I, I'm not finding my groove. Um, if you could go back at that time and say, OK, what, what advice would you offer yourself or that student? Yeah, I think it's mostly just to be patient with uh, with ourselves. You know, uh, we don't have to map out our whole legal career in law school, you know. Um, but it's kind of irresistible because when you're a law student, people ask you, oh, yeah, well, what kind of law do you want to do? You know, what kind of, what do you want to practice? And the reality is, like, we'll probably change many times. Like, if I, if I, someone would ask me, my first or second year of law school, whether I would go into uh, legal academia and now, uh, you know, uh, the administration of a faculty, no way, I wouldn't have known that, wouldn't, uh, that I would have ended up practicing for a time in New York. I just wouldn't have been able to predict it. A lot of these things happen just um, by accident a lot of the time. Opportunities present themselves. I mean, you have to work hard to uh, create opportunities or, or put yourself in a position where you can capitalize on opportunities, but what opportunities actually present 
is very hard to, to predict. So, but oftentimes students worry a lot about that. And uh, I would just encourage them to be patient with, with themselves and, again, focus on the process because it's, it's doing the process well, getting the most out of your time in law school. That's what's going to put you in a position to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. So speaking of amazing opportunities, I want to ask you about your time uh, clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada because it's not every day we have um, people um, coming to be interviewed who've clerked there. So first of all, who did you clerk for? And tell me about that experience and what are some of the most valuable lessons you learned during that time? Yeah, so I clerked for Justice Binney and it was actually the last year uh, before he retired. Uh, So that was... I mean, we didn't know that at the time, uh, but that was uh, quite an honor for, for me anyways to, to uh, work with him um, for that year. I learned a tremendous amount. Um, I, I off, students often ask me about that experience if they're interested in, in clerking. And um, one of the things that I tell them, it, it's a very personal experience with a judge and also your chambermates because being a judge at any levels and certainly at the Supreme Court is an isolating thing. You know, I mean, um, the Supreme Court judges don't socialize very much. There are limits on what they can do in, in that regard. Um, and that can be difficult because the legal profession is a collegial one, right? And lawyers are kind of used to interacting with one another. And that's actually one of the privileges, I think, of the legal profession is how collegial uh, we are and the opportunities to make friends and acquaintances and that kind of thing. But uh, there are restrictions on Supreme Court judges in that way. And so when you're uh, a a clerk, uh, you know, the the chambers, uh, so with us, it was uh, Justice Binney, uh, three clerks, a a judicial uh, assistant and a court attendant. And we were like a little gang, you know, we were like a family for a year. Right. And that's very, very special. And you learn a ton. I mean, um, you know, Justice Binney practiced law for 50 years at the highest level, all kinds of different uh, uh, cases and settings. And uh, you just learn a ton from from someone like like that. Um, And probably the thing that I learned the most from him just in terms of um, process or how he he did his work. And I share this with my students because one of the, the skills that I think is, is lacking uh, in, in law students today, we need to do a better job of teaching it is legal writing. And, and uh, Justice Binney is, is known for being an excellent legal writer. Um, and uh, that's something that he worked very hard at. Uh, you know, even after so many years in practice, he would do multiple drafts of his of his judgments, you know, sometimes much to our frustration because we're assisting him with that. But what you realize is, wow, the people who are at the top of their game in a particular endeavor, and here it was legal writing. I mean, he didn't, he didn't take it for granted. He didn't rest on his laurels, like up until the very end, you know, and he's probably still doing that. He's active in practice. He's painstakingly going over drafts over and over again. And, and I, I tell my students that to show that, you know, you've never, you've never reached the point where hard work is irrelevant. You know, you have to keep working at it to be, to be successful. So watching someone like that work, 
uh, was really illuminating. It was like, okay, well, if I want to take my career, you know, even a fraction of the way that, that this person has, right? This is the kind of diligence that I'm going to have to bring bring to it. Yeah. I've always been curious. After um, someone clerks at the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal, it seems like a lot of opportunities arise. And, and maybe that's just my perception of it. But I know with you, you ended up working in New York um, at a big international firm doing commercial litigation. And it seems like there's a lot of that where people will go and, and, and maybe it just speaks to the intellect and ambition that got them there in the first place. But it, does that happen once you've finished or, or opportunities falling in? Or are you, again, making opportunities to seize that? Well, actually, for me, it was the the inverse. So so I actually worked in New York before I, oh, okay. I clerked. Yeah. And again, it was... Um, a bit of serendipity. So what happened was, uh, again, I, I was so focused on the outcome and getting a job and the grades and the whole thing that I was um, concentrating on the Toronto recruiting process. Um, so I had OCIs lined up for that. And I got an email from our faculty career office saying that there was a, a law firm uh from New York that would be interested in getting some applications from students. And I remember seeing that um, email and looking over at my dresser where I had one extra copy of my resume and cover letter. It was just sitting right there. And I thought, oh, I might as well, like, I might as well put that in, you know, this email just so happened to land in my inbox, you know. So I drafted a pretty quick cover letter. I didn't know very much about the firm. I, I submitted it. And then uh, met with the, the partner who happened to be a University of Ottawa alumnus. We hit it off. I went for an interview in, in New York, and I got hired. And had I not had that one, that that coffee <laughs> sitting there, right? I might not have I might not have done it. Um, so you know, and that led to two years uh, in New York uh, during the, the height of the financial crisis, which wow. was quite a learning experience for me. Um, but I had regretted because I was so focused on, again, like getting a job and getting my career going. I regretted that I hadn't applied for a clerkship, particularly after my third year. I thought, oh, you know, I would have really liked to do that. Um, and I hadn't applied. And then uh, I also knew that it's not typical that people will clerk after a year or two in practice. Like what you more typically see is a year in another clerkship or maybe articles, but this was a little bit outside the norm. And so I thought, oh, maybe I wouldn't be competitive uh, or not what they're looking for, but I decided to go for it anyways. Um, and the, I'm sure you'll, you'll get to this in your questions later on, but one of the things that happened is that, uh, so I, I did the interviews and um, I didn't think I got it. Uh, so I went to the gym and the gym was in the basement of uh, of a building at the University of Ottawa. I took my cell phone with me on the off chance that they would call, but because it was underground, my cell phone didn't ring. And so the whole time I'm kind of depressed there doing my workout and thinking, oh, well, you know, I didn't get it. And then I get out of the, the gym and my phone gets its signal back and I see missed calls from this weird, like, government number. Right. Uh, and I was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, anyways, I was offered uh, the clerkship to start in June. 
which is kind of different because usually clerks, I'm not sure if it's still this way at the Supreme Court, but usually they start like August, September on that kind of 12-month cycle. But Justice Binney wanted someone to start, in one of his clerks to start in June, and he asked me to do it because the other two clerks were kind of on a more traditional sort of bar exam kind of cycle. Uh, and um, I was a little bit ap- apprehensive. I wasn't expecting that because I had things to wrap up in in, in New York. Um, and uh, I was also expecting a bonus too. <laughs> so if I, you know, so this was going to cost me a little bit of money. Um, anyways, make a long story short, though. Of course, I accepted, uh, and then I met my wife there. Right, right, Jane Thompson. James, yeah, and uh, so uh, just. So much serendipity there. Uh, like when I think back to it, you know, it's like, wow, I was actually thinking about my bonus, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I met my wife, you know, so, and what an amazing uh, opportunity. But again, like it was not kind of planned. I mean, the only thing that was really planned, and this is, goes back to the theme that I mentioned earlier, right? The only thing that was planned was, I guess, work ethic, right? And trying to do the very best I could. Uh, in in law school, so that whatever opportunities presented themselves, I'd be in a position to take it take advantage of them. But you know exactly which ones and when and in what order. I you know that was I, I didn't have that planned out, and I don't think you can really. Because I get you know I guess what you're getting at is you look at a lot of law students who are very ambitious, but also very meticulous in the way they at least seem to be planning out their lives. But what you're describing is probably more the rule than the exception as you look uh, from what I've seen with practitioners is where they are in five, ten years. It's very different from where they were in law school. Not always, but there is always a lot of serendipity that comes along the way. Um, Before we get on to a lot of serendipity and where we are right now in Fredericton as you as associate dean, I I just don't want to leave New York yet because I, I know, you know, a lot of law students look at this as um, the gold medal of, of where they want to be, um, you know, because Bay Street, but then beyond that is Wall Street. Uh, what is that experience like? Is it everything that it's cracked up to be? I think it depends. I think it depends. So for me, it was an amazing experience. Um, and it was a difficult time because uh, when I joined the firm as an associate in the f- late summer of 2008. I mean, within a few months of that, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers was bankrupt. Uh, and that just sent things into a downward spiral. Was uh, it just chaos at the firm? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. And And at the time, I didn't really understand what was going on. I was quite naive. Like, I thought, and, and, and I guess most junior lawyers who are in large, go into large corporate practice, probably are too. Um, they don't really understand what makes these places tick. And, and so it was, it was um, a little bit disconcerting, right, to see all of our clients' uh, fate so uncertain and what was going to happen. And, you know, uh, uh, some support staff were starting to be um, terminated. And, and, and so uh, that was difficult to see. That was actually the first time that I had witnessed that kind of thing in, in my career. I was still really young, you know, I was like 20, 25, 26. So I hadn't worked long enough to go through a, 
a recession like that and see people losing their jobs. And, and so that was difficult. Um, one of the things that happened to me uh, when I was very fortunate, and, and, and this is why I think it's so important for students to focus on their skills in law school, like focus on the process, not the outcome, because it's the hard work and the process is going to save you. Um, uh, I was working on a, a file. Um, it was actually a pharmaceutical patent uh, case. I, I hadn't our, our litigation department was commercial litigation and intellectual property. And I was uh, supporting a senior associate on this particular pharma patent litigation. And um, all of a sudden, that associate had to leave and, and leave the country for family reasons. Um, and there was a lot of work to be done on the file. And the partner, who I was quite terrified of at the time, <laughs> Uh, called me to come to his office and said, um, you know, uh, so uh, uh, our colleague went went home and we've got this brief due in 10 days. Uh, do you know how to write a, a brief? And Americans call a factum a, a brief, right? So I had never written one in practice. In fact, I wasn't even ad admitted to the New York bar yet. I was still waiting for my results. Uh, but I said, oh, yeah, I can do it. Absolutely. You know, and meanwhile, I'm like terrified <laughs> inside, you know, but I knew that uh, I had developed some really good skills, writing skills, doing the Jessup uh, because we worked very hard on that and we were um, successful. And uh, so I knew that if I could replicate what I did through that experience in law school, maybe it'd be good enough. Like I didn't really know what the standard was, but at least I had done something like this before. So I, I applied those skills to this task. And uh, of course, like any junior associate, I got um, a bunch of, of red ink. But one of the things that I, I tell students and, and junior lawyers is that the red ink is a good sign. It means you're, you're your work was worth spending, spilling the red ink on, right? If if you don't get the red ink, it wasn't worth it, you know. So I got I got some comments back, uh, and you know I I, I uh, incorporated those comments, and that was the beginning of the next two years of my of my practice, um, where I did a lot of writing, um, and um, so my experience as a very junior. Uh, a litigator at, at one of these Wall Street firms was kind of atypical uh, because I was doing pretty high-level stuff. Um, but again, I was pretty lucky. You know, it was it was a, an opportunity that presented itself, uh, and fortunately, I had worked on the skills so that I could do the work well enough to uh, give a partner confidence in in in. Uh, you know, having me do more work for him. So. Was, was this like a huge contrast going from New York to um, clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada? It was just a very, <laughs> a lot quieter perhaps? Uh, it was, but actually like it was, it was, uh, it was different, right? Like, I mean, at the Supreme Court, you're thinking about legal problems uh, with a different mindset, right? Like you're trying to come up with, um, you know, the so solutions, uh, our proposed solutions to, to the judges that um, 
you know, are going to provide appropriate direction to lower courts. It makes sense from a legal policy standpoint, you know, whereas obviously in New York, so much is about the billable hour and the needs of the client and you're a bit of a, uh, you know, of a hired, hired gun, right? Whereas right. at the Supreme Court, it's, a, it's more about uh, in, in engaging uh, in in the problems and try to help judges find solutions in the public interest. So it's a very different experience. And um, I learned a ton from the time in New York just because of the the volume and nature of the work that I that I did. Um, like for example, I learned a lot about how um, the economy works and particularly financial institutions because that, that was those were a lot of our clients. And uh, I saw what happened during the financial crisis and what brought it about. And so eventually that led me to go to grad school where I focused on corporate governance and the impact that corporate governance has on financial stability. You know, and that was uh, the root of that was my experience in New York. So it was all positive. But I, I have to say that that's that's an, not a typical experience. Uh, I'm I'm told, like compared to my other colleagues at the time, they were doing a lot of like called um, doc review, right? Mm-hmm. So so reviewing documents for for litigation. I imagine there's less of that now, just because a lot of that is being outsourced. Um, that was starting at the time I was there ten years ago, but um, it's probably a much bigger thing now. So I think the challenge is if you want to make it a really worthwhile experience, you got to try to find ways to get the higher level work quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that that means, you know, uh, trying to build relationships with uh, uh, partners who you could see doing work with who are active in areas that that interests you. Um, The other advice that I give is that if you get assigned uh, a higher level task, so kind of writing a factum or something like that as a junior, and you don't get the red ink back. It's it's as if you never handed it in. You have to realize that you have a problem there. You can't just assume that everything is fine and just wait for the next assignment to come. You have to be really proactive. So, uh, you know, my suggestion is, you know, get in touch with that partner or senior associate and say, you know, what happened with that that assignment? Uh, you know, is there something I can do on it? Is there, was there some problem I want to learn? I want to get better. You know, you, you have to be diligent that way because opportunities aren't just gonna gonna come to you. You know, and it's not. I mean, it it takes time to to get to a level where you're doing that higher level work well so so that initial kind of maybe false start that's nothing to get discouraged about you just have to keep going forward but but the nature of these busy practices with the billable hour targets is not all of the senior senior associates and partners are going to have time to reach out to you and mentor you like you got to take charge of your own career if you're not getting the opportunities you can't just sit in your office and wait for them to come to you have to go and get them because the way those firms work is if you haven't developed your like most people are not going to make partner there at least that was the way it was at my firm uh, so most people what the best they can hope for there is um, th- they're going to develop enough skills in a particular area of law and make enough contacts in whatever industry they're serving that they're going to be able to move on to a next opportunity. And and those firms are a wonderful starting point for that. That's, that's what, how most junior lawyers enter and leave 
those practices, right? Very few of them actually end up uh, making partner. So if that's the case, then you almost have to do what I was suggesting about law school, to make sure you make the most of this time, develop all the skills and contacts and have the, the relationships, you know, that, that, that are going to serve you after. Um, the students who are the, the um, associates who didn't do as well, um, you know, in, 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 in my uh, firm uh, were the ones who kind of sat in their offices and waited for the work to come. And, and you, can't, you can't do that. So after you're, you're finished your clerkship, uh, was it straight into academics from there, or did you end up doing some post-grad work after that? Well, it's funny. Um, so I did the clerkship, and I really wanted to um, come back to Canada and practice law. Um, and I was actually keen to have clients who were human. Uh, because I, I had done so much work for, for, for corporations. And, and at the level that I was at, still quite junior, I wasn't meeting the principles, right? I was, you know, a cog in the wheel. And uh, even though I was doing work that I found very interesting and fulfilling, I'd, I, I wasn't, um, you know, the, uh, I wasn't interacting with decision makers. I wasn't dealing directly with the client. And so um, I wanted to have that kind of experience. Um, but I actually found it really hard looking for, for work. I wanted to be in Toronto looking for work at the types of litigation uh, firms, civil litigation firms that I was interested in. Um, you know, they were pretty small practices compared to the one I was coming from. The, the people who were most keen to employ me were the big uh, uh, corporate firms. Um, and that's the experience that I had in New York, and I wanted something different. I wanted to, as I said, you know, interact with clients, get in the courtroom, you know, develop a different set of skills. And I wasn't, I just wasn't having much luck cracking into the, the firms that I wanted to work at. They, they had all hired their articling students already. And, um, so anyways, what, what happened was I got a call from a former professor of mine at the University of Ottawa who said, you know, we're, we've been advertising, uh, for this position, someone to teach, uh, corporate law mm-hmm. primarily, because at the time what happened is a federation of law societies made business organizations, not quite business organizations, but um, fiduciary obligations in commercial relationships, some course that dealt with that theme became mandatory. And for a lot of law schools, they they uh, satisfy that requirement by making business organizations mandatory. Um, so they needed more people to teach business organizations. And at the University of Ottawa, there's a French common law program, so they needed someone to teach it in French, and I was able to do that. Um, and, uh, and and what was interesting about this uh, opportunity is apparently there was going to be some teaching in English, too, in, in, in courses that I had never taught before, like torts. I hadn't even looked at torts, really, since my first year of law school, but but anyways, that didn't deter me. Um, so, so my professor said, you know, uh, we've been trying to find someone, but we can't, really, and, and it's not surprising. It's such a niche thing, right? Business organizations in French, uh, that's kind of not not typical. I didn't have my graduate degree yet. I really didn't think I was uh, qualified. Like if you look on paper, I hadn't published a peer-reviewed article. Um, but, um, you know, so I needed a lot of 
reassuring <laughs> to apply because <laughs> I didn't I didn't want to like th- this I really thought I was out of my out of my depth like I you know um, I yeah I, I I think it's important to take chances in one's career but here I thought I was really I hadn't planned for this at all so no LLM no peer-reviewed publications I never taught a course before um, I really only had practice experience in my clerkship and actually not a ton of practice experience so um, but anyway, so like, no, no, you'll be a competitive candidate. It's worth a try, you know. And so I applied, and I don't think they had anyone else really, <laughs> you know. Like it was just such a niche thing that uh, you know that, that I ended up getting hired. And then what happened was I did my LLM after that. So I deferred for a year, did the LLM, and then came back. So any thoughts of ever going back to practice? Um, and if so, even even just as a fantasy, what do you think your fantasy firm would look like what what would you you know if you were forced tomorrow to say you know what michael you have to go into practice what would what would your fantasy firm look like so actually uh, i talked about the jessup uh, which i did in third year and um the my teammates on that on that team uh, are my best friends so uh isn't that cool three uh three others and uh, we often fantasize about going into practice together <laughs> to get the dream team back that, that's right? that's how we it's exactly what we say <laughs> because we're a bunch of nerds uh, who are constantly trying to relive the glory days right um but uh no i mean that was uh, that would be pretty cool yeah. um you know to kind of practice with a group of people um and what, what's nice about that group is i i know them right we're really close and they're all super smart and accomplished we've worked well together before and uh, so that's kind of a fantasy of mine you know it'll right. never happen we're in different cities now <laughs> sure. and, but but that would be that would be pretty cool um but staying kind of in, in touch with with practice though is something that's always been part of my career like even though i've primarily been focused on teaching and research so um when i when i started teaching at the university of ottawa one of the things that um again i regretted a little bit is i never had that opportunity to because my intention in coming back to canada was i'd get a job at a litigation boutique and i'd get on my feet and you know, develop that side of my skills. And it, it wasn't going to happen, or it looked like it wasn't going to happen. And, and so I decided to just like take a few files on my own, like as a, as a, as a sole practitioner, um, which was pretty uh, intense and <laughs> nerve wracking. I did a lot of employment law for, P, for people, uh, mostly um, uh, workers, but also some, some employers too. And um, that was a really rewarding experience because that that kind of filled my desire to help people like, you know, humans. Right. Right. And and actually um, be the one that that the client relies on and trusts and have that responsibility. So I actually did that for four years part time while I was at the U of O. I didn't have many clients, but it was enough to. Uh, give me that experience and actually uh, help me with my teaching Um, because a lot of the work that I was doing was employment law which you know is fundamentally about contracts right and I was teaching contracts at the time and so that uh, was very helpful because when I was in class trying to explain a concept right I could often uh, 
talk about things that have had come up with me in the last few years, you know, in right. my, my practice. Whereas the type of work I was doing in New York, I, you know, I, I use that a little bit um, when, when I'm teaching business organizations, but it's, it's not quite as relatable uh, for, for an introductory uh, course. Um, so, so that's been really important to me to stay connected with, uh, with, uh, with practice. And now uh, what I'm doing um, is I'm on a, an administrative tribunal. Uh, in uh, New Brunswick, the Workers' Compensation Appeals Tribunal. So I do a hearing once a month, uh, which I also find really rewarding, keeps me grounded, gets me out of the ivory tower, reconnects me with what the law is about, you know, which is about the challenges that people have, trying to resolve them in ways that, that make sense. Um, and, uh, and I'm teaching administrative law. Uh, so the again, the two complement each other really well. And I don't think I'll ever be able to give that that up my contact with the profession. Hey everyone, before we continue, a quick thank you to our exclusive sponsor LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis has been essential in developing the podcast with us and bringing you the content you've learned to love. For this episode, be sure to check out the links in our main page where you can visit the latest solo and small firm e-brief brought to you by LexisNexis Canada. This is an invaluable resource for solo and small firms, which includes a solo spotlight interview with lawyers, articles highlighting solo and small firm trends, areas of practice, newsletters, and more. In the latest e-brief, you'll see topics such as how can AI help lawyers, cloud security, and why legal marketing often falls flat. This is an essential resource brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, and we encourage you to visit the link by going to our website, roboshowlaw.ca, clicking on this podcast, and you'll be able to click through to all of these links. In addition, you'll find links to practice notes and meeting wills, trusts, and estate litigation and dispute and intellectual property and technology experts. On this page, There's profiles and interviews of some of the top litigators and practitioners in this area. These interviews are fascinating, and I encourage you all to go and read them. And you'll also find a link to the three-part series on wills, trusts, and estates, digital estate myths. So thank you once again to LexisNexis Canada for bringing this wonderful content, and thank you for your ongoing support. And with that, back to our podcast. So let me ask you then, blending those two concepts together, um, what do you think practitioners could learn from academics and and vice versa? Um, You have the the benefit of having both perspectives. What do you feel you draw upon when you're dealing with either? Yeah, so the other thing that I do a lot of, uh, and and particularly when I came to to New Brunswick, um, is I do a fair bit of professional uh, development. So any opportunity that I have to go to a, a CBA uh, conference and you know give a, an update on uh, you know uh, corporate law or or administrative law or anything that they're interested in, really, I, I take that opportunity. Um, I think one of the things that practitioners could benefit from uh, in terms of engaging with academics is that you know practitioners and i know this from my experience from practice we we, uh, rarely have the opportunity to take a step back and reflect on you know the fundamental legal principles uh, the the policy issues behind the cases that 
that we're dealing with. I mean, you know, our clients have limited resources. They We want to achieve outcomes for them. There's all kinds of procedural and practical constraints, right? And we just don't have the luxury to do that. Um, academics, legal academics, spend all of their time trying to think about those problems and those controversies in the law. And, you know, so I think if there are more opportunity for dialogue there, it would be uh, really beneficial. Um, so that's something that I try to do with some some professional um, uh, development. Um, you know, and, and there's practical benefit for that kind of thing. Like, you know, unfortunately, I think some of, uh, and I've come across this attitude uh, amongst uh, lawyers as well as a lot of legal academics are very theoretical or out of touch with, with practice and that kind of thing. Um, I've actually, most of the practitioners or, or the, the academics um, that I've encountered actually have a fair bit of practice experience one, one way or the other and spend a lot of time thinking about trying to solve practical problems. They're, they're, um, and they're the type of problems that practitioners don't, aren't able to devote a lot of their energy to, but they're the problems that are shaping their practice. And, and so, you know, an opportunity to learn from, from someone who spends their day thinking about, about those issues, I, I think is worthwhile. So big picture question then, uh, along those lines perhaps, is we see demands and skill sets for lawyers in 2018 very different from where we were 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. And for law schools, um, you know, you as an associate dean must be always thinking ahead, trying to figure out where we're going. Uh, in particular, there's been some discussion as of late with um, the Law Society Bencher um, election in Ontario, and some uh, lawyers have been calling upon the Law Society to deal with the articling uh, problems that many face in the LPP program, and some have even gone so far as suggesting that law schools need to recalibrate and perhaps make the third year uh, more practical, akin to what we're seeing at Lakehead right now. Um, what are your thoughts just generally of, of you know where law schools are going, what pressures are coming back from law societies, if any? Yeah, it's actually something that we're dealing with as well at the University of New Brunswick because we're, 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 we've embarked on a strategic plan, strategic planning process where we're trying to figure out what our direction is going to be for, for the next 10 years. So I've actually done a fair bit of, of thinking about this. One of the things that, that concerns me about this debate is that um, it's really hard for for us in 2019 to think about what the legal practice is going to be in 2029 uh, or beyond like uh, and so there's a risk in focusing too much on like the latest thing you know and making sure that we have a course on this particular thing because we know that that's going to be what lawyers need to to, to do 10 years from now. I don't think anyone can predict that with certainty. That's not to say that we don't need to have a relevant curriculum, like we have to be teaching contemporary skills, okay? But I think it's dangerous to um, try to uh, forecast too much, right? I think it's probably better to um, focus on core competencies that are going to be necessary regardless of what direction the legal profession takes. So things like 
critical thinking, right? Analytical skills, legal writing, communication skills, professionalism, resilience, right? I, I think those things are going to um, prepare students for the change that's going to come. Um, I don't think we do a great job on all of those things. I'm talking just generally in, in law schools. There are a lot of issues around mental health for lawyers and, and law students. I think we're going to have to come to grips with that. Um, and so one of the things that we've done this year at, uh, at UNB is uh, we've devoted a significant uh, portion of our foundations course, which is actually like our introduction to law school for for law students um basically a whole day on 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 mental health um and looking at mental health as a professional obligation um so the idea is that lawyers have an obligation always to make sure that they're competent to discharge their their duties so that means that a lawyer has to be in tune with their mental health needs and status. And if they're not doing well, then they need to get help proactively to make sure that they're going to be able to meet the demands of the profession, right? Um, and uh, so that's something that we're trying to mo- promote quite a bit. Not, it, you know, um, making sure that people with mental health challenges have access to uh, legal education through things like accommodations, that's always going to be important. But the other skill set that we're trying to, trying to instill as well is that you can take charge of your mental health, whether you have a mental health issue or not. That is your professional obligation, right? And, uh, and, you know, that, and, and, you know, that's actually, that can be empowering for, for, uh, for students. And we've worked a fair bit with our counseling center. Um, on on those uh, principles, I, I think um, that's great. And I frankly, I've never heard of a law school taking that sort of initiative. I'm, I'm certainly have heard of law schools um, putting aside resources, but never framing the concept as part of one's professional responsibilities. I think that's very uh, innovative. I, I have to ask. I was going to ask. You know, what what do you think UNB does really well? And clearly, that's that's one issue. But are there anything? Uh, any other things that you feel uh, really uh, at UMB stands out? Huh? Yeah, so I think what we're known for uh, is having a well-rounded core curriculum. So one of the distinctive features of our curriculum is that students take a lot of mandatory courses in a diverse uh, area of uh, diverse areas of law. Um, so they come out really well-rounded with exposure to theory, uh, different uh, areas of, of law, um, and also kind of the core uh, 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 principles or, or, or black letter law type type courses. So that's what we've been known for historically, um, and, uh, and 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 that that is distinctive, and I think still uh, still relevant. Um, since coming here, one of the things that that I appreciate. Uh, uh, the most about the faculty is just the learning environment. Uh, and by that, I'm, I, I'm referring to two things. So one is the attitude of our students. They have an extremely positive attitude. The morale among students is, I, I think, really special. And it sets it apart from, from other law schools that I'm familiar with. I mean, our graduates are the type of people that I would really enjoy working with. Because again, they're, they're well-rounded. They have diverse backgrounds. We have a lot of students for whom um, uh, they're the first 
members of their family to get a university education. They're very socioeconomically diverse, so a lot of students from rural uh, communities. Um, and uh, that just brings the type of perspective and, um, and uh, attitude, I think, that, that makes for a rich learning environment. So I think that's pretty special. And the other thing is just by virtue of the size of the faculty, the small size, students get a lot of attention and mentorship from individual professors like that's actually a big part of of our work is is helping uh, students with their uh, career aspirations advice uh, trying to find opportunities for them our our faculty members spend quite a bit of time on uh, on that and uh, and it's actually something that I found is rewarded in the way that are that we're assessed in terms of tenure and promotion at other uh, law schools, I understand that, you know, there's a trade-off. The more time that you spend on things like that, the less time you're spending on your publications and things that are really going to count when you get ahead. And um, and I found at UNB that the things that I do uh, to, to help uh, our, our students to serve the, the faculty are um, taken seriously by uh, the university administration in terms of promotion and appointments and, and that kind of thing. So I, I think I think that's special as well. And, and it, it, it leads to a really positive learning experience for, for students. So let me flip that back to you. Uh, it's often said that teaching's a two-way street. What sort of lessons have you learned from your students in your capacity as a professor and associate dean? Oh, yeah, I've learned a lot. <laughs> uh, so I can give you a couple of anecdotes here. Uh, when I started teaching, uh, I was pretty terrified. Um, and in the first the first class I taught was contracts. Well, I was teaching, uh, yeah, it was contracts. It was in the fall semester 2012. And um, it was the first class I ever taught. And there was a, a student in that class who was really giving me a hard time. <laughs> I think he wanted to like challenge me or push me. And, and I mean, I was pretty young. I, I was 30. I guess I looked young. And uh, so, you know, he thought, okay, well, I'm going to show this guy who the smartest person in the room was. And I, the way that I dealt with that was I was very deferential to this student, even though most of the time, his comments were not really on point. Like I was just very, very deferential. And oh, well, that's interesting. And I spent a lot of time on his interventions. And um, uh, a couple months later, or a month later, um, a few students came to my office. And they said, you know, like, the reason why we're here is to learn from you. And you need to kind of take charge of the class because you're the professor and you're spending an awful lot of time on this guy. Uh, we actually want you to teach us the material. And that kind of woke me up, you know, and I, I talked to some colleagues and they said, yeah, you know, you got to take control of your class. And, and so it was those students coming to me that got me to, to realize, okay, like I, I have to do a better job controlling the class, getting through the material, staying on point and that kind of thing. So they were teaching me how to teach, really. Uh, and that was kind of my first encounter with that. And then um, another uh, uh, class of my first year teaching, I taught torts. And I had a guy in uh, the torts class who was a retired naval officer, wonderful man. And uh, he uh, must have been in his 60s, and uh, he had retired. 
and I think it was living like in Florida or something. Like he was having a wonderful life. And for some reason, the guy decided that he should uh, move back to Ottawa and go to law school. And so, you know, here we are in, in my torts class and there's this gentleman who is twice my age, has all kinds of amazing life experience. It's a little little intimidating, you know, but he was super respectful and, and wonderful. And then we, we got to talking about a case called um, uh, Matthews and Horsley, um, which is a case of, about involving negligent rescue uh, uh, in, in, on, on the on the water. So basically, there was a there was a captain of a ship who who invited some friends on the boat, and they were drinking, and one of them fell over, and then the other one fell over, and then the captain tried to turn the boat to rescue one of them. Anyways, uh, they, uh, the, the the guy died, and so there was a you know a, a lawsuit, negligence, and the issue had to do with duty of care and i'm trying to explain the whole turning of the boat you know and the different parts of the boat and i look at this student and he's just like mortified like he's just you know really you're getting it all wrong but he was so polite you know that he wouldn't say anything and so i said to him you know okay why don't you just explain what's going on in this case right and then he talked about you know how well this is you got to turn a certain way and then this is what he did wrong and so I actually find that, like, in a law school class, there's so many interesting people in there with experiences who often know a lot more than I do about the particular issue we're, we're talking about. Like, you know, I don't know anything about driving a boat, but this whole case was about driving a boat, and there was someone sitting there who could help with that. So that the lesson that that taught me, aside from the fact that I now understand the case better, is that I need to be uh, more open, you know, and, and I hope that I have been, to, to, to encouraging students to share their perspectives on the, the material because they very often have something to contribute that I, I don't. And it was, you know, again, that experience from a student that, that taught me that. So I want to move to, um, in wrapping up here, I want to move to some lighter topics. Um, in particular, uh, we've already discussed that you met your wife, Jane, at uh, the Supreme Court of Canada while clerking. And now she is a UNB professor as well. Yeah. And there was a really nice uh, story uh, in the Daily Gleaner about how you ended up both finding your dream jobs here at UNB. So if you don't mind sharing that story again. Yeah, well, um, what happened was um, we were in Ottawa. I was uh, full-time at the Faculty of Law there, and Jane had just finished her LLM, and she wanted to go into law teaching full-time. She was in practice, um, and, uh, and, and so she started teaching part-time at night. She taught two courses, uh, uh, her first year courses she hadn't taught before and wasn't super familiar with. Um, and, uh, and we were also starting, you know, trying to start a family and that kind of thing. We had our first daughter. So it was like pretty hectic, you know, it was pretty, pretty hectic. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. And um, so anyways, uh, make a long story short, Jane's uh, family is from New Brunswick. And uh, we spent a lot of summers in Fredericton because her mother lives here. And we were here the summer of, um, of 2015, just like for, you know, a summer vacation visit to, to my mother-in-law. And, 
you know, we were just out for a walk with our, our daughter, and we, I, I think I, I said, hey, so, like, what if we moved here and, you know, tried to get jobs at, at UNB? Like, what do you think of that? And Jane was actually pretty surprised because I don't think she thought that I'd ever be open to that. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so we made some inquiries and, and we had actually some friends on, on faculty. So, um, one of, uh, my colleagues now, Hillary Young, was someone who was at law school at the same time as me at the U of O. And she competed in the Jessup the year <laughs> before I did. So I was familiar with her and we had friends in common. Um, and so, yeah, we made some inquiries, found out that they would be hiring uh, a couple people in like exactly our areas of law. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, business law and, uh, and, and Jane being a property and wills and estates, trusts, that kind of thing, private law. Um, and uh, so we were just really lucky, uh, you know, and uh you know, kind of going through this interview with you, I just realized how fortunate I've been. Um, and because I, I know a lot of people, like academic couples, who've struggled to land in the same city, you know, and have commuted and been apart for some time. Jane and I were apart for three years as we were trying to establish our, our careers. I know how difficult that can be. And uh, so, no, we were just really, really fortunate and, and we love it here uh personally professionally it's uh yeah I, I feel like you're somehow gaming the system on serendipity here you've got some serendipity uh, i don't know forecasting maybe or i something. should buy a lottery ticket <laughs> i think so several <laughs> so uh, uh let me ask you a few more questions about your day today what does a great day look for, like for you michael uh well if i can get a pretty good night's sleep <laughs> the day starts off pretty well uh, my problem is is that I'm a bit of a night owl, and it's not a good habit. I do a lot of work at, at night, uh, particularly writing. I just that's when I write a lot, and and um, and my brain is is kind of working, particularly in my administrative role now. Like I spend a lot of my days in meetings uh, and correspondence and that kind of thing. So the other part of my job, uh, you know, research and and teaching, preparing for class, that kind of thing, that that happens at night. So if I can get a good night's sleep and one of my kids doesn't wake up and whatever, <laughs> um, so if I can get enough hours and I wake up feeling rested, I think that's great. Um, and I mean, you know, uh, uh, having a good class for me is typically when I have a good class, I uh, start talking about a topic and I get really engaged in it and the students kind of engage me and we have a, a good discussion and, and, and if I can like tell a good joke in the process and they laugh, then that's fantastic, you know? Um, so that's, that's a good classroom experience. Like if I, you know, was able to engage my students and interest them in something and make it fun, then I think that's, that's a good class. Um, and then, you know, in terms of my like administrative role, um, you know, if, if we can move the ball forward on some of our objectives, you know, so we had a good day a couple weeks ago uh, where we found out that we got some funding to do um, pretty extensive renovations to our, our building. And those are going to happen in the summertime. Um, so that's a really good day, uh, you know, and because you can actually see all of those meetings and 
lobbying and planning and proposal writing come to fruition. So, What about outside of law? What do you do to sort of wind down and try and forget about your administrative duties yeah, and all your yeah. classes? Uh, well, I'm trying to uh, get back into the gym. So uh, before I, I had kids and they were kind of occupying most of my energy, I was pretty, uh, you know, serious uh, weightlifter, powerlifter, that kind of thing. Uh, I hear a former rugby player. That also, that was that was a while ago. That was in university. Uh, and I haven't been on the rugby pitch in like, I don't know, 15, years. It's probably a good years. thing. Your, your brain's worth a bit too uh, much yeah, to be no, I can't. Uh, I'm, and I'm actually afraid of getting injured because... Uh, I, I played uh, probably for like 12 years pretty seriously, maybe 10 years, high school and then university, and I never had a serious injury. Um, and uh, so, like, again, very fortunate. I'm not going to tempt fate, you know, but sometimes when I'm in the gym and, like, getting stronger, I think, oh, maybe maybe I got one more season <laughs> in me. Maybe I could, you know, there's a, rugby's actually big in, in Fredericton, and there's a good rugby club here, though. Maybe maybe I could go out for their seconds team sure. or something. And then I quickly realized <laughs> that would be a terrible, terrible yeah. idea. But, no, I think fitness is, is really important. It's actually something that I talk to uh, students about a fair bit in terms of mental health mm-hmm. um, because it, it it really does have a positive impact on on, on your mental health uh, a lot of people don't realize that and, and they focus on you know kind of uh, um, fitness goals right and they want to look a certain way or you know um, feel a certain way physically but I, I find it it just as helpful mentally uh, I'm more productive I think more clearly I I'm uh, you know uh, more positive more confident if I make that part of my uh, my routine. So for me, when I when I'm I'm doing that, I think at this point it's primarily a mental health thing and balance and uh, th- that sort of thing. And aside from that, it's like sp- spending time with with the kids. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, I'm really looking forward to the summer because we've had a tough winter in Fredericton. I've heard, and I uh, still see the snow, snow piled up yeah. outside. Yeah. And the crazy thing about Fredericton is we don't we don't um, remove the snow. We just push it to the side of the street so you have these huge mountains which can get depressing yeah so but well, the summer is like really melting. nice yeah. it's now it's melting yeah that's right so i'm looking forward to to that and we you know spend a lot of time in in parks and then we, we go to the splash pad the kids kids love doing that swimming lessons um you know walks with the dog we have a 120 pound bull mastiff and so uh he keeps us busy as well well, I think that's great. I, again, I, I really am impressed with how that perspective of mental health needs to be part of our professional obligations. I think that's a, it's a, certainly a perspective I've never heard before, but um, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of lawyers who listen to this podcast. So my last question to you, Michael, is a bit of a tweak to the question I normally ask. And the question I normally ask is, you know, if you could run uh, an ad on uh, the Stanley Cup Finals with the Canadians and the Munch, uh, and the Leafs, what would it be about Lola? So I just want to change that a little bit. Same same time, same game, but um, what would you say to a student who is thinking, should I go to law school or not, and maybe in particular to UNB, what would you say to encourage them or maybe open up their understanding of what it means to become a lawyer or go to law school or perhaps even into academics. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, um, 
the thing that most students don't think about when they're um, contemplating law school is um, they don't fully understand what it what it means that the law is a profession. Um, so the, the law is a profession in the sense that we have uh, a, a privilege to uh, you know provide these types of services to clients and um, and and you know they I think they have a, a sense of what those services look like and the skills they'll develop um, but I, I think that one of the privileges as I mentioned to you earlier is that it's a collegial profession so I mean you know for better or worse like our, my wife and I, our best friends are all lawyers, right? They're people we went to law school with, which probably isn't very healthy. <laughs> um, but it's, for, for me, like, it, I, I think it's a real privilege and, and a joy of, of, of being part of this profession, of going to law school and, and having this, like, community of, of people who kind of share experiences and values, you know? I mean, that's... I, a lot of prospective law students don't think in those terms how special that actually is, not just from a career standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. Like it is a real a privilege to be part of this profession on so many levels. It's not, it, it's, it's quite uh, distinctive from, you know, it's not just like, you know, doing an MA in history, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's something uh, special. And, um, so I often talk to students uh, about that and, and also the fact that like a legal career can take so many directions, right? Like there, there's, there's no particular path. We've heard a lot of paths right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like there's no, you can't, uh, and oftentimes you'll, this is, this is, everyone knows about this. We, we get, uh, admissions essays where students uh, say they want to do a particular thing with their career. And well, if they go back and read that, they realize after five, ten years that they're not doing anything of the sort. But that's fine. You know, that's totally fine. Um, and it's also a way to kind of develop skills. Like I'll often ask students like, well, do you like writing? Do you like thinking about problems? Do you like discussing problems? Um, and, you know, if they say yes, well, well, law school helps you get really good at that. You know, it helps you think about those things differently or from different perspectives. It makes you more um, influential and credible in tackling those kinds of problems. So it doesn't, you, know, you don't have to want to be like a courtroom lawyer or have a, a certain type of career in mind, but are these the kinds of skills that you'd like to develop? Would you, would you like to be part of a collegial uh, profession where you'll meet lifelong uh, friends, do you want to challenge yourself? Because it's hard, right? So, and, and a lot of students are looking for a challenge. Um, and I guess what I would say about UNB is we provide the type of supportive en environment where, uh, you know, all students have an opportunity to, to develop in, in that way. So it's a, it's a small, uh, school, but it offers limitless possibilities. So we have alumni all over the world. Our students are uh, working all across the country in all sorts of practices. And uh, I, I think one of the things that's really special is, okay, you're going to start in a small place. You'll dedicate yourself and you'll have all the support you need. And then you'll go wherever you want. The, the, the opportunities are, are limitless. So that's, that's what we have to offer at UNB. Well, 
you may have a lot more enrollments uh, uh, in a couple of years. Uh, hopefully this podcast catches on to a lot of people listening. So everyone, uh, that was Michael Marin, Associate Dean here at the University of New Brunswick, Faculty of Law. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. Thanks for having me, Sean.